You're with Cabaret Ash from Claim the Throne. Again, thanks for tuning in. Uh, awesomely enough for you, we have a guest today, so you can listen to someone far more interesting. His name is Ian Binet. He's from a band called Red Sending, who Ash and myself uh, have played with for some time. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. been good. And he does all sorts of other awesome things that you're about to find out. Like Ash, coffee making what's mostly. Going on? That's the have we asked you a question yet? <laughs> How dare you interrupt? <laughs> yeah, we just had an awesome coffee made yeah. by Ian. Which was very nice. Fuck and now off. we have a hot hog, as is tradition. Mm. So, cheers, fellas. Yeah. Let's talk. Cheers, guys. <laughs> so, Ian, let's cut the crap. Can you tell us about the band Summoning and why their album Stronghold is so good? Oh, I don't know. It's all about atmosphere, I think, yeah. And we've talked about this many times in the past. I suspect this is the first time podcast land has heard us <laughs> talking about maybe three hours about Stronghold. Mm. Atmosphere. I think at the time it came out as well, there was a, a lack of that sort of stuff. So to me, it was something totally new. It was black metal done with mostly synthesizers. And that just blew my mind that you could have such a dark sound without sort of huge amounts of production and guitars. Wow. And would that have uh, been your inspiration for, uh, I don't know, solo songwriting as well? Just sitting on the computer and being able to do anything you want? Yeah, the think, click of a finger. Yeah, the idea that you can just do everything, including say programming drums, and just bring a composition together with a single computer—that that was really the thing for me. Mm. Cool. Ash has been all over summoning lately. Yeah, to, yeah. Know. It was funny because you had once mentioned Cabba that summoning was Ian's favorite band, and I'd never heard it before, so I gave it a listen, and then I've asked you about it when we when we jammed and played the gig. And just every so often I'd have a bit of a listen. But mm. most recently, I'd say two months ago, just from nowhere, I had nothing to listen to on a plane ride. Right. Got it on my Apple Music, which is what I do these days. And it just clicked. Like yeah, it really yeah. clicked. So I thought it was cool before, but I just suddenly understood you suddenly got it. it. <laughs> and I think it really did click because I heard you in it, if right. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, like the comparison between Red Descending and Summoning, even though they sound completely different, I thought, oh. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, because there's that thing, especially on uh, the first actual long song on Stronghold, mm. where it's like one guitar riff constantly for like eight minutes pretty much, you know, <laughs> with variations and stuff. But And it just building layers on that. Yeah. Really yep. slow program drums and, and making no bones about it. It's sequenced and yep. keyboards yep. and everything. And it's just like, it, yeah, it creates a whole um, array of textures. And it's mm-hmm. heavy. Yeah, Oddly. surprisingly heavy, I think, for yeah. the instruments they use. I think, yeah, you're right. So you build things up and you use instruments as textures. That creates the atmosphere. But more than anything to me, like that as a band is you can use your imagination while you're listening to it. Your mind goes places that mm. it doesn't go with other music because it's probably more meditative in a sense. It's much more uh, repetitive, but not in a bad way. In mm. Like I said, like in a building up kind of a way. So how the hell do you do that without, if I play a riff, and I'll play it repetitively, mm-hmm. it just sounds like a riff repeated. Right. So yeah. how do you get around that? Well, so you lay down one riff that you think will actually have legs in terms of things you can build on top of it. I think it probably comes from when I first started composing was using sequencing software, and I didn't have a keyboard at the time. So all I could do was literally draw the notes in to a sequencer. It's so time-consuming that you don't spend time playing huge amounts of notes. You just get the base idea down. Mm. And because you've spent all that time getting that one thing down, you then just cut and paste that and then that's your baseline. And then the next thing over, you add the next instrument on top of that 
and just build it up layer by layer. It's almost an electronic music production way of doing things. What software was that? I used to always use, like, when I first had a computer and started recording stuff, Fruity Loops. Oh, yeah, 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 like yeah, The very yeah. first iteration of that. Um, so I'd use that to make the drum beats, then export those as WAV files. And then I can't remember what sequencing software I actually wrote it in. Sonar, possibly at the time, or whatever mm -hmm. it was called way back in the day, because I just used that to run samples on my very first computer. Fruity Loops, the demo back in the day, let you... I think that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. you yep. used to be able to export, but you couldn't save your project. Exactly. So I did the same thing. So you have these ethereal ideas that don't exist for very long. You just use it for getting those mm. drum programming, export the WAV files, import those into something else. Ephemeral <laughs> ideas. <laughs> yeah. They disappear. But yeah, I did the same thing using first Windows Sound Recorder, but then Goldwave, mm -hmm. which was like a demo that would let you... It, every time you did a function on it, it would click up like one cent down the bottom. Right, right. And when it got to a, like a dollar, it would cut you <laughs> off and you'd have to restart. <laughs> but yeah, you'd get these loops and you just like, I, I would do it with the drums and drum beats mm -hmm. and then just like copy past a, a thousand times. Yeah. And then I'd record over the top guitar along to that. So yeah, definitely very different, but it's it's interesting how you were doing similar things, but for completely different results. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. even before that, I'm, I'm casting my mind way back. So <laughs> I sort of grew up using a Commodore 64. and then For recording? Dad, not for recording oh, yet, but oh. sort of that was the first computer we had. Yeah. But the first thing I recorded with was the Amiga 500. Did you guys remember that? I had a 500. Might have been before your time. I don't know, Kevin, but... <laughs> we upgraded to the 2000s. Right. So. We couldn't afford that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a piece of software on there. They called it... Um, I think they called them trackers. Mm -hmm. And essentially, you'd be playing notes with keys on the keyboard to trigger samples that were being played from the hardware on the Amiga 500. Yeah. I can't remember the exact software. It's called like OctoMIDI or something like that. Mm -hmm. Basically, that means you had eight tracks to work with. And that was the first time I started realizing you could actually make music on a computer. But back then, of course, I didn't have any of this gear that we're recording with at the moment. So mm -hmm. all I had was a tape deck. So just consumer stuff. I play it back through the speakers of the Amiga 500 into a tape deck to record that. And then we had two tape decks. So I played that back with a drum beat and then play guitar over the top of that to record stuff way back in the day. So, <laughs> so you were like recording in a band environment. Yeah, that's right. Doing it live, was... but creating all the stuff myself yeah. individually. Yeah. That's Love it. awesome. How did you even think to do that? I, I guess, well, keeping in the 1930s time period. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> did you just learn all that stuff yourself? Was it just yeah. trial and error? You didn't go to sort of... No, uh, I had no idea classes of some sort, nothing. So the only thing, and th this is kind of my philosophy, especially for music in Western Australia, is I think the isolation is to the point where you just do everything yourself. You mm -hmm. don't have people to go to experts to talk to, so you work out how to do everything yourself. Probably, um, I did have a friend when I was in primary school. His dad worked at the ABC Studios as a recording engineer. Mm. So I do remember one time when I was really little going to visit him and seeing what he was working with. And I think subconsciously that probably trigger my mind to going, oh, you can actually do this amazing stuff. Yeah. Mm. So I suspect everything I've done since then has just been me replicating a professional environment but using consumer products like mm. high-speed dub tapes. Do you guys remember doing dubbing when oh, you were yes. little? No? Again, Cabba's just oh, recording <laughs> songs off the radio, I guess. Yeah, it? yeah. Um, but there was another technique you could use that basically played the tape at twice the speed. <laughs> so you could, for example, I remember my, my brother got um Decade of Aggression <laughs> for Christmas once, and I was like, I really wanted it. So <laughs> what you could do is you could play it at twice the speed, um, and essentially the other one records it at twice yep. the speed as well. But it means because it's going at twice the speed, you could hold down the high-speed high dubbing button halfway through and actually record stuff. 
Mm. So record your voice at twice the speed, but play it back at half the speed so you could octave everything back then too. So mm -hmm. I think I was using all the techniques that people were using way back in the day, but um, just using consumer products like tape recorders and stuff. And I guess figuring it out as you went along, because I did exactly the same thing. And I used to try and record radio shows of myself as right, a yep, yep, and do like the DJ stuff in between and put on voices and then put my favourite. You're listening to DJ Largy. <laughs> that was Cold Chamber <laughs> with Bradley. Yeah. <laughs> but then, yeah, we do stuff like that for like effect in between and mm. do like the chipmunk voice and stuff because mm. I think I had access to like a micro cassette or something like mm -hmm. that as well. And you could do half speed yep. and so do the opposite. And yeah, you start experimenting with all sorts of weird stuff like that and then I, I was at the time where it was a crossover into digital so yeah I did a lot of stuff on tape I'd bounce it to digital through my Sound Blaster right. 16 <laughs> and then you know get a loop of something off a corn song mm -hmm. and um, or, or take samples off individual songs and you start building that yeah build it and then like pitch it down or, or time stretch it mm -hmm. which would pitch it and you'd yeah I don't know <laughs> all this stuff that you do because like for me I was living in a you know, a rural city mm. where we had access to absolutely nothing. Yeah. So do know? you think, again, it comes from having a lack of resources so you make do with what you've got? Yeah. And you basically end up turning a tape deck into an instrument that can do many more things than I think people who had access to huge amounts of stuff would think of. Yeah. I think just, it's, it's yeah, good for your, your problem-solving skills and everything and just being able to find a way to do it no matter what you've got, which is probably the same if you've got the best studio in the world. You still need to figure out what the best ways of doing things with what you've got. Yeah. 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 Well, making cables to get things like, oh, well, this cable plugs in here and this one plugs into my guitar. If I cut them and splice <laughs> them together, hopefully it'll work. And then these very cables we're using, I made. Oh, brilliant. Because yeah. they're, I, okay, I get how they work now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, like, in a bit more of a professional manner, I can use that idea, but came from when I was a kid. Yeah. I think a lot of people that would shy away from getting their hands really dirty in those environments like there are engineers who do that stuff but there are people who just produce and they just do things they go just get this done big picture people i guess we grew up from a time when we didn't have access to that stuff mm. so yeah you learn the nitty-gritty of it small picture we've been talking a, a lot <laughs> lately <laughs> about going back to basics as well so yeah. you know talking about these things that you would do to make do ages ago and you know and then you as you Growing up, you're finding out about all this different equipment and experimenting with things and then buying the best stuff, best mm, range that yeah. you can get. And then you realize that you don't need all of that and you go back to what you need. And even today, we've got, what, one laptop and one uh, small portable console and a couple of cables and here we are. And it's worth Sure microphones, <coughs> all we need. Have you found that over the years? You've been buying yeah. lots of stuff. Do you get, you know, buy well, and sell and upgrade? And well, I, okay, One thing I usually don't do is sell things. So Ash just brought back <laughs> a mixer that I lent him for some live production that we we're doing. Yeah. But that one I bought when I first bought my first sort of professional audio card. It was a Terratech EWX 2496. It was like a proper PCI card that you had to plug into your computer. Uh -huh. It just had stereo input so I needed an outboard mixer to get mm -hmm. all the stuff going into it so it wasn't good for doing um, multi-track recording in one instance but I could still record say stereo guitars and things like that mm. but that is an example of something I've never sold and mm -hmm. I've actually very rarely sold anything which a bit of a hoarder but <laughs> it's always come in handy there's always been something I've gone oh, I've actually got that somewhere so I always <laughs> yeah. reach for an extra piece of outboard equipment that I can chuck in and use for something um but one thing I can say for sure, so I haven't done so much of the selling, but I have done more of the purchasing. And I think I got into a period where I probably spent more time researching audio mm. gear 
making it work, making computers run that audio gear, and I just wasn't actually doing any music. So it just got in the way mm. of me actually creating stuff. We have that conversation all the time. Yeah. Mm, it's just a Very waste of time, I think. But um, I don't know. You, you learn a lot, but you probably have to go through that process to realise just how important it is to know how it works so you can streamline the process. And I think what's happened is through that time I've spent doing it, now I can problem solve and work out what the issues are, but I'm doing it on a subconscious level, so it's not annoying me anymore. It's not mm. taking me out of the moment of recording something. Awesome. That was a great story, Ian. Thanks for sharing it with us. <laughs> I thought you were going to like say my childhood. Was <laughs> the, uh, the first instrument you learned, was it a guitar? No, I learned um, piano. Yeah, was right. Little, yeah. Were you, um, you had lessons? How did you learn? I did, yeah. So I had lessons. Um, probably what I started when I was maybe... Maybe 10 years old, I think it was. So I learned piano for a couple of years. And then at primary school, there's like a music program where I started learning classical guitar. And then mm. I did um, music at Churchlands after doing that, again, studying classical guitar. Awesome. Um, but that all changed when I bought my first electric guitar. I was like, <laughs> I don't need this stuff. But in the meantime, I guess I built up um, keyboard technique and guitar technique. And that would definitely help with songwriting today. Uh, definitely, the, definitely keyboard and... I guess I think in terms of patterns and chords that I learned on the keyboard and even apply those to how guitars used. Um, and, and in recording stuff, now that I do actually have a keyboard I can use, that's my main go-to instrument in terms of sequencing, programming drums, doing synths and things like that. So your keyboard or piano lessons, was that like for Elise and Canon in D? It was, yep, yep, yep. Just stuff. <laughs> Did you learn much theory? Or Not a huge amount. I actually, I shied away from doing any of the actual Amy B exams. So... Mm -hmm. I didn't want to spend my time doing examinations and becoming a, a piano teacher eventually. Mm. All I wanted to do was know how to play. And so I just focused purely on technique. Yeah. Um, I've always had terrible eyesight, so I can never really sight read very well. So what I actually used to do is essentially learn all the pieces by ear mm -hmm. and then do my performances as if there was music in front of me like everyone was supposed to do, <laughs> but I just know how the whole song went. Oh, <laughs> so you'd pretend. Yeah, yeah. I just I faked oh. my whole way through by using my ears, basically. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I've had this thing recently where, and I don't want to drag it too far off the history of Ian topic, but <laughs> just I've noticed a lot where I, I don't know a lot about theory either. I mm. know bits and bobs um, halfway between drums and um, harmonic theory, I guess. Yeah. But I'm noticing that all my songs are pretty much in the same key. Yeah. And all the moves I make on guitar or keyboard and actually... Well, that same... Yeah, yeah. And so it's always that jump between, you know, from up a minor third mm -hmm. i seem to like that or something but i was never able to categorize that why you did it or what it was that you're doing yeah it just sounded right to you yeah and I, i've got this uh, weird conspiracy where i think um there's like these structures in place mm -hmm. because of pop music and i was telling someone this on our tour last week and he said oh you know the that band that plays a hundred songs famous songs with the same yeah, chord yeah progressions yeah. or whatever and it's like that. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you can't, I think we get conditioned to hear what is essentially the, uh, the major scale because the minor scale yeah. is the same notes just starting in a different place, right? Like the major, uh, major and minor modes. Yeah, yeah. So like they're all just in the same bit except this, this time I just happened to start on F sharp instead right, of... Right, yeah. You know what I mean? And open like, a different world. Yeah. So, I mean, how valuable do you think is theory in that sense and especially because you're more ear trained mm. than sight reading yeah so a, a lot of the stuff you're saying is mm -hmm. i'm just thinking purely about why i tune my guitar to c because every time i sit down at a piano the first note i play is middle mm. c 
which I was always trained to do. You'd sit down, you'd position yourself. So whenever I play the low note on a guitar, I expect it to be C. So that's why I tune to C. Okay. <laughs> it's, it sets a framework, but a lot of the stuff I write will then be in that key. What I found recently, I'm talking to you guys um, off air, um, we've talked about changing back to standard tuning and essentially mm. what I'm trying to do is break that old paradigm by changing my tunings and things to avoid mm. that. Have you been listening to the Stained album Break the Cycle to help you with that? <laughs> no. <or>? no. <laughs> but do you, do you find that you still start with C? Yeah, C minor will be my go-to. Okay. Sure. And interestingly, you said we've been conditioned to listen to major ones. You might have also seen some guys who do, they take major songs written major keys and turn them into minor songs. Mm-hmm. When I hear that done, I'm like, there's just a bit more interest to me in the music. So I suspect I've been trained more in the melodic minor key mm. um i'm trying to think why that might be i'm, I'm not sure um, mm. i didn't listen to a huge amount of pop music when i was little so <laughs> yeah it is very bizarre but, and, and i also notice as well when i go and play a keyboard i don't, i only use the white keys right <laughs> because, okay yeah, because yeah. of that yeah, exact reason that, yeah because yeah, yeah. that just that i can build everything off that mm-hmm. and i don't know how to because i'm not a keyboardist or a piano player i can't break out of that whereas on guitar I'll pick a note and I'll just unconsciously do it. And if yeah, I apply yeah. it to keyboard, I'll go, oh, I'll just hit the white keys on my guitar. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Like how do you approach or do you listen for things in songs like let's say in summoning? Mm-hmm. Do you gravitate towards bands and song writing like that for any harmonic reasons? I suspect so, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I guess we're talking about power metal, for example, recently and I think I love the idea of it and certain bands that do it amazingly well like Lost Horizon, they've got that dark edge to it. And I suspect when we're saying that dark edge, we're talking about your minor keys. And one thing we often don't like or that doesn't gel with us as much is when you hear um, really like positive sounding, major sounding power metal bands that ends up just not rubbing well with me at all. But I'm not sure if it's just because of the key. Well, or I don't think it's even just power metal. It's a lot of different <clears throat> styles of metal and you can... Yeah, you can tell. I mean, let's compare, say, like soil work to at the gates, perhaps, mm-hmm. even, and you can tell soil work have well often will have um, yeah a lot more major sound, I guess. Yeah, but yeah. power metal is particularly obvious. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, when did you first start composing metal? Probably when I was in uni, so late nineties. Um, you find yourself doing a lot of um, lectures in the morning come home you've got most of the afternoon it's like sweet let's yeah i would sit in those lectures thinking about the songs i was gonna (laughs) try and write later and yeah so so probably yeah um when i had time on my hands during university was when i started doing most that something you were like sort of planning and wanting to do or it just i don't know because you're already playing music and you're into metal you just wanted to start doing that i think it's a progress that's just Um, what comes out when you play so so i've always listened to metal um since i started playing classical guitar when i was about maybe 11 12 which is about when the black album came out so (laughs) (laughs) good gateway drug i think (laughs) and and i think that so the thing that got me onto it was learning the intro to battery on classical guitars Mm. so that's that's what you do awesome but i still had that um acoustic focus to music um and i really like other stuff and just like jamming on things like funk and Mm. So I never fully embraced playing metal, um, although it was just always this massively underlying um, thing I'd always listen to. Probably wasn't until I started writing in earnest that I realised it was just way more you could do with metal as a genre. You can do anything, basically. Um, like we're talking about summoning, you know, essentially being a synth-based black metal band. 
there's not many other instrument styles or musical styles where you could just totally change the instruments on their head and still be classified as being one of the most, um, well, I think, like um, perfect bands in that genre. Few <laughs> 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 soft words. Yeah. yeah. Did you? I guess when you first started writing or putting songs together in metal, let's say, mm. was it just a matter of coming up with some cool riffs that you wanted to lay down and then just Definitely, layer them yeah. one next to the other yep, yep. and then turn just it into all, a song? All riff-based. Um, you'd come up with this one riff that you always wanted to use. One thing I was always also into was a lot of industrial bands and I do remember them always saying a lot of those guys were into metal. So you had this massive crossover between industrial, lots of program drums with metal guitars as well. And a lot of their biggest complaints about metal was that you had these riffs that were just the best riffs that just appeared for once in a song. Mm-hmm. And there's the occasional one that's just a throwaway bit. It's just a killer riff in a bridge and it's the best thing about that song. So they would sample those bits and repeat them. So I think in my head I was taking that process where you write a good riff, you like it so much that you use that as the main key and focus of that. So that might be, again, where that layering's mm. coming from that we've talked about before. Great. And so were you thinking about choruses and verses and bridges and all that or were you just doing whatever sounded good yeah um so yeah so my early songwriting was really haphazard it was just riff after riff trying to string it together i tried occasionally to take that sort of pop approach we have a verse chorus verse chorus bridge and then you end and it didn't quite work as much for me back then Uh, it works way more for me now um but at the same time that's that sort of that structured approach that sometimes kills a song where you're so stuck into trying to make it sound in that format that it just doesn't flow. Awesome. Were you always capturing these ideas that you would have? Would you always oh, be yeah, recording everything yeah. that you ever write? Yeah, there's a massive backlog of riffs yep. that I'll sometimes go through again. But then that, that's just hours of going through old stuff. You've, have you guys done this before? We yeah. just mm. go through hours of old stuff and you tinker with the idea of um, resurrecting something. But there's something about the magic of the time that you captured that very first riff that you played that I, just, I often can't replicate. Mm-hmm. It has to be a totally new song. So what I often do, leave all that crap aside, and I just go, I'll just write a new song because it's easier mm-hmm. than trying to replicate something I've done before. But influences will come through from those riffs. For sure. I mean, yeah, we've, we've got backlogs of just riffs, <laughs> yeah. which is great in theory, but when it comes to actually putting a song together, you can't really just find a riff and pluck it in i mean yeah. you can get um you know inspiration from it if you've got a bit of a, a writer's block or something you can hear a riff and go oh that's a good idea let's take that angle but yeah hard to sort of just plonk it into a song yeah yeah and it, it sounds like you've tried to plonk it into a song when you try to do that sometimes yeah you can totally tell and i think you listen to any claim of throne album you can definitely tell <laughs> but i've also done things where i've written like what i think would be a killer intro to a song mm-hmm. and then inside my because i sort of write into recording software they don't have a big gap and then it's like this is the guts of the song or the main yeah. bit yep. that I want to get to. And then I'll just do everything I can to get one to go into the other. Yeah. And nine times out of ten, it never works. You're trying and to force it, right? Yeah. And in most recently, it's just, fuck, well, why don't I just make two different songs? Exactly. And it's yeah. worked. Yeah. Like, yeah. well, this one just can't be that, so why force it? Yeah. And I think because they're your little babies. You want to bring them life. Yeah. You want to join them together. And there's two ideas you had that in your head were the perfect match to each other. But in reality, it's yeah. only because it's, there's something in your head that you've heard before or, or some concept that you're trying to make work mm. that isn't universal. So how, how <laughs> have you then gone from that like riff soup idea mm. of just riff to riff to riff to creating some kind of a structure? Like how the hell do you do I that? Think, I think... 
realizing that you have to work with people. So when I started working with Bernard and Red Descending, where he would be mainly responsible for getting lyrical ideas down, but also for actually making the songs gel in terms of how he would be delivering lyrics. Once you're working with someone who has to deliver something in that way, you start to realize you've got to actually import some structure to give them a chance of getting something that's going to be um, mm. palatable, essentially. Yeah. So, yeah, I, th I think working with other people has made me realize that the ideas aren't that precious, that you can go to a, a verse, chorus, verse, chorus structure um, just for ease of working with people. Yeah. So have you always preferred writing by yourself? I know we've had this conversation before oh, yeah, a little bit, but, um, <laughs> yeah, which I've been hanging to talk more about. M mainly because, and, and when I've tried to do it in front of people, um, there's someone there co-writing essentially with you. What I think my process is one of repetition where I'll be playing the riff over a drum loop and essentially just working that. But it doesn't happen like that. I think some people expect you to come up with a riff immediately Quite often the idea of the riff will come straight away, but refining it into something you're actually comfortable with can be an hour of just sitting there playing the same thing over and mm. over again. Really repetitive. And the whole time I'm doing it, it's not so much that I'm worried about doing it, it's more that I'm worried about what they're, how bored they're getting. <laughs> so I feel yeah. like, oh, I've just got to cut this short and you compromise when you probably mm. shouldn't. Yeah, I think not enough time is put into riffs in metal these days. And mm -hmm. I hear them and I think like, oh, it's so cool, but... Could it could this. be better yeah. and you can hear where people just copy it. Well, they might record it just continuously, mm. but it sounds like they've just gone, okay, I've got this In their structure, idea. they've cut and pasted it. We're yeah. going to do it eight times and yeah. then we're going to move into a bridge and they might have a cool little linking lick or something to get it to move. But mm -hmm. yeah, there's something that happens and a band like Summoning is a mm. good example or well, other bands where they, they're essentially playing the same riff. They're just yeah. kind of slightly expressing it a different way as they go along. Mm -hmm. So there's this... Um, An evolution. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Which is hard to get unless you do just constantly work at it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the worst doing things in front of people. I yeah. hate... We've tried to write in the jam room before. It's a nightmare. Yeah. For, for <laughs> metal, I think. I think there's different styles though where you have to have a band around. If you're doing more jam stuff and there's someone laying down some awesome bass and drums that are locking in with that, playing the guitar at the top of that and essentially jamming it out is the only way to go. Mm -hmm. Trying to replicate that in a studio and writing that and then telling the bass player to do this and slap here and stuff just doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> true. But with metal, I think um, the way that it's structured and the way that it has to have, I guess the rigidity of it, you need to have a much more disciplined, structured way of writing things that just doesn't translate to doing it in a group. The best way I've found is to write the riffs, get the ideas down so you have essentially sections, then sit down with someone else and then mess around with moving parts around to get a better structure to the overall flow. That seems to work quite well for me, but not the original iterations of the different riffs. Mm. I think Red Descending has got it down to a, a fine art these days. Well, maybe not now when there's no <laughs> albums coming out, but <laughs> in terms of um, you know, songwriting, you have your sort of your main songwriter who's you know, putting all the initial ideas down, a uh, few really cool guitar riffs, um, being able to record those, do some drum programming to mm. give it a bit of life, then passing it on to the vocalist who can listen to it, put some ideas out and mm. lay some lyrics and then give it back to you in that that gives you more of an idea of how the song will work as a whole. Yeah. And being able to expand on the bits that are good, uh, then that's when your sort of your verses and choruses and whatnot will come about. That's right, yeah. Then showing it to the rest of the band who can then give some feedback and then you can adjust mm -hmm. things from there. Uh, which I think is, is really 
awesome process to watch. It's like an iterative thing where it goes out, comes back, refined, goes out again, comes back again. If it goes to too many people, though, it loses. Um, well, for sure. Uh, I don't know, as long as it's done right and, yeah. and everything, I guess, but and at the right time. I and mean, we've had uh, processes in the past where we just try and, you know, which, you want everyone to be involved in the songwriting process, of course, but when you're taking, like, an idea from five different people mm. and then just stitching them together and then coming up with some vocal ideas and then people want to change things and it just gets really messy and doesn't sound like a song. Yeah, it loses cohesion. As a whole, yeah, for sure. I guess, but it, it can work, if, yeah, if uh, yeah, practice enough and, and figure out what works for your band, I guess. I was, I was talking to you before about, um, I guess, one, one of the other things I listened to way back in the day was a lot of sort of college rock bands like Fish and bands like that. Have you ever come mm. across them, Ash? I haven't listened to a lot of them, but so, yeah, I always hear them referenced. Probably not for this audience. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but one of their recording ideas in one studio in particular, one studio album in particular was amazing where they work really collaboratively and the idea was they could each go into the studio and they could either add something to a song or subtract something from a song mm. and they could just do that in sequence. So you had the drummer go and the bass player and they, they could take away from other people's instruments and things. That is a wow. an experimental way of doing something yeah. is crazy, but yeah. I couldn't see it working for this style of music at all. Yeah. For them, it works because it's much more jam based. And yeah, we've totally had that where Cabo will write, and it's actually happened with the two earliest songs for the last two albums. Mm. So the first one was this song called Incursion, which is now about maybe touch on three minutes. Mm-hmm. It used to be like a five minute song. So it's just been cut, cut, and cut. it it just got ripped apart because that was the very first idea for the mm-hmm. album and this new album that is not out yet and probably never will be released because <laughs> suck. it was everblade and that started one way and i got attached to these demos and loved the ideas and then you know someone else went in and retooled it subtracted someone else comes in and restructures mm. a bit different and then both times cab is like i fucking hate that song so right yeah you know and it's I don't know. I can see how that could just totally ruin a metal song. Yeah. We've got it to work, I think. It does always work in the end. It's just, yeah, like we were saying earlier, you get attached to those early yeah, demos. And yeah. even now, like, we have these songs out and then we stumble across the old demos and we're like, fuck, it used to sound so much better before we yeah. recorded it for an <laughs> album. <Yeah. laughs> before we ruined it with production. Yeah. <laughs> That's a scary thing too because if you demo too uh, expressively or something, mm-hmm. yeah. if you don't just keep it simple, then yeah, when you go to record the album... How the hell do you? I, I have it? used um, bits, especially um, leads and things, mm-hmm. where I capture the feeling on a demo randomly, without even thinking about it, and I've actually used that. And what I've always done recording-wise is always recorded the direct guitar, but also recorded some form of amplification, either mm-hmm. through software. And I've managed to just import that direct guitar, reamp it in the song, and still use those bits. <laughs> So I, I guess my, my thing is, yeah, don't 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 throw it away. It's yeah. it's always useful. I spent Sick. about two hours trying to re-record this riff for the last album. Couldn't get it. Mm. And then on the next bit, I couldn't get the clean. I got the riff right, but I couldn't get the clean tone to have the same character, same guitar, same. But it just tone. didn't sound right. Didn't sound right. So I just like found, thank God, found the actual original file and just pulled mm-hmm. them straight in. Didn't tell anyone. Doesn't matter. No one knows, Who right? Cares. Until now, <laughs> yeah. Now, now yeah. you're airing now your the dirty laundry. On yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> It's got to be that way sometimes because, yeah, it's so much of playing is feel and, and feeling. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And if you can't get that again when you're recording it, it's going to be a dull song for sure. Yeah. Do you guys ever hide stuff in your music? <laughs> <laughs> 
I will say yes, but I know you're a master <laughs> at this. So, like crate reference. Yeah, we do definitely do it, but influenced by you for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's it's so obsession fun. with crates. Um, People got no idea what's going on, but there's something buried in there. Well, yeah. you released the king. Well, sorry, <laughs> we released the Kingdoms album and many years ago, mm-hmm. and you did say, "Look out for the word crate it's hidden somewhere hidden on the album." Somewhere in Still there. to this yeah. day, I've so not just found once? it. There's just one crate in there. Yeah. So I can't. I can't. It's find buried it. so deep. You'll, yeah. Unless I've told you exactly where it is, and you listen to it with that mindset. And please leave that information it. in your will, because I don't want to <laughs> go to the grave never knowing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure Nick Bean's been searching it for years, <laughs> just trawling the album, trying to find out where it is. We've done things like Ash is the master of um, recording people in public when they don't know they're being <laughs> recorded, and uh, so people that are funny or drunk or just saying ridiculous things, and we're having a hell laugh about it. A few days later, he goes, hey, listen to this. And it's the that. It's that. <laughs> but then in the recordings, he'll, you know, reverse them or put right, some weird yeah. thing on it. And he's like, check this sample out. And it sounds like thunder or wind or yeah, some nature. Yeah, but and he, the then he reverses it and you're like, holy shit, dude. Yeah. That's amazing. And to me, that, that's an amazing <laughs> thing you can do with recording is you're, you've recorded an idea that someone's got. You've turned it into some musical element in a song and it's there forever. And only you know it's there. That's the amazing thing. The new album is about a desert. Mm -hmm. But what does a desert sound like? Wind, right? Is that it? So what I did is I got this conversation that went for 40 minutes of this guy in America when we were on tour. He was the worst dude. And I just put heaps and heaps of reverbs on and all this stuff. So his voice becomes the wind. Yeah. So he is the wind that is reoccurring across the whole album. So anytime you hear wind, it's this one guy talking. Which is also social commentary on him just being a gas bag and winding away yeah, through. Yeah, Genius, exactly. you guys are cutting edge. It's <laughs> so funny because I didn't like print it. I left it as plugins. So like when we were listening back to the mixes, I'm like, Cabba, do you like this mix? And he's like, yeah, this intro is really cool. Because it starts the Thank album you. and ends the album, by the way. Yeah. Um, and so then I just like mute all the plugins and suddenly it's like, <laughs> hey guys. <laughs> You guys are fucking awesome. <laughs> but anyway, 40 minutes the wind, that. yeah. But do you know, it has more meaning now because you've got a story behind where the sound and the sample came from. And all our band was involved in talking yeah, to yeah, this guy. Yeah. And, and, um, That's trying, a piece of history. Everyone had their own little sort of trouble with him at yeah. the same time <laughs> and it's all on the new album. <laughs> are you going to send him an advanced copy? Yeah, I don't know if we could even hunt him down. I don't know. Probably arrested or dead. He was not even a metal guy. I don't know how he ended up at this gig. He was just like a A weird sort of. He's probably listened to this. Some like 45 year old. I don't think he remembers he was at the gig, let me tell you. Um, I was asking you a few weeks ago about the song Slaughter Falls Mm. from uh, the Red Descending album Where Dreams Come to Die, which can be streamed on Spotify or uh, searched (laughs) on Facebook and bought via the merch store. Again. The. uh, the structure of that song has always blown my mind a bit mm-hmm. uh, because the verses and choruses are not over the same music each time. Like yeah. the, the, the lyrics I'm in, uh, which I hear on in metal occasionally and it's just something I've never been able to do. I just get stuck in this thing of having the music for the chorus and that's where you sing the chorus. Right. The yeah. Slaughter Falls has got this thing where it's like the verse, the chorus, and then the next riff is like the intro riff again yep, and yep. then Bernard is singing the verse over that over riff that, and yeah, it's like yeah. a, it's a stagnant, a, um, I don't know, just a weird order of, <laughs> <laughs> of, of the ways things are done. That ever? I don't know, but I've loved it. Is, is it one that you enjoy though? Is it a Big time, yeah. That's when I first became a fanboy of um, oh, Red Descending. Oh. But yeah, I do. So let me explain that again. So music-wise, you've got the intro, mm. the verse, then the chorus, then the intro, the verse, the chorus. Mm-hmm. 
but the the lyrics, the verse starts in the verse yeah. and then the chorus and then the next verse is over the intro riff mm-hmm. next and then the chorus is over the verse riff. Yeah. Is that ha- does that work because <laughs> because you would have written the music, right? Yeah. And then Bernard yeah. comes in with his vocals. That's, that's he just does it like yeah, that. That's and, an exact. And that's something as the the composer of the song that you probably would never plan. Absolutely, and that not. would be yeah. the beauty of bringing a second person in yeah. to collaborate. I, th- I think, and we talked this, like I said, a couple of weeks ago. That was a prime example of where collaborating, in a way that there's structure, that you get something that's way beyond what you could have come up with by yourself. For sure, yeah. Uh, it's another example of a song where all those riffs have existed in some form or another over years. And that's just one song where it actually came together quite well. Mm. Um, I think, again, through having Bernard go through the riffs with me, sit down, work out a structure, then send it to him for that sort of, um, I guess, the, the vocal delivery at the top of it. That's just one time where that worked so well, I think. Mm-hmm. It's unusual, awesome. though. It's hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I wonder, blowing. I mean, it, it's hard because, I don't know, yeah, as the songwriter, you wouldn't think of that. Yeah, but then, yeah. yeah, just bringing someone in to chuck random screaming New ideas, metal yeah. vocals down and they just do it. <laughs> and then you go, actually, that's trippy. <laughs> anyway, enough songwriting now. I'm, I'm over that. I've I'm, I'm got my Well, that fill. transitions pretty nicely into recording. Mm-hmm. So question one, why? Question two, have you ever been recorded by anyone else before? Yes, yeah. So, do you mean like in terms of guitar playing on things? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Like, because primarily now you just do it all yourself. And with Slaughter Falls, you recorded that, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but previous to that? Yeah, yeah. So, I used to um, play in a funk rock band called Earshot. You, you know Gav and those guys, he right? He was the singer yeah. of my band, Mochi. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perth, right? Forget yeah, about yeah, it. Of course. So, we, we did some recording with, um, it was a bass player from the Baby Animals, I think, who wanted to sort of produce oh, us and do some recording for that. That's, that's kind right. of when the band fell apart. Yeah. Okay. Um, my my experience of doing the recording then weren't that enjoyable. I didn't like being in a studio in a booth mm-hmm. with someone telling you what to do and to replay things. I just didn't feel like I had any control over that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also helped out with some other people, um, Simone and Girlfunkel, which is like a folk band. <laughs> I just knew one of the Good um, <laughs> genius name, right? Yeah. I knew one of the girls, and they just wanted a guitarist to play over the top, so I just helped out with some sort of overdub guitar playing in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, experience, I don't know. I just feel like you're doing something that someone else is controlling, and I don't like that feeling much mm. at all. I love being able to record when I want to record it, play when I want to record it, and sort of control the whole element. Take as many takes as you need. That's the other thing, yeah. I guess it's nerve-wracking when you think about studio time and how much is being paid per mm. hour, per minute, essentially. And if your mistakes are being made, then... Yeah. If you're not feeling it tough, you're there, yeah, you're paying yeah. for it, you've got to record. That's right. Yeah, that does make it difficult. And I know when, on our last recording, I played one guitar part and mm-hmm. Cabba was suddenly behind the computer. And he was like, <laughs> yeah, cool, that's good. And I'm like, no, press record again, now. And then he'd press record again and then I'd freak out after Cabba left. And he goes, yeah, cool, we got it, we got it done. I'm like, sweet man, see you later. Then did another hundred takes <laughs> yeah, yep. by myself and got it because I'm so used to just pressing that, you know, the little shortcut and then going and that's yep. it. But when someone else and I'm waiting for him to do it, and I'm like, I know you lose sucks. all flow. And yeah. yeah. I found it difficult. And then I really started almost feeling bad mm. for the other people. Like, oh, that's what they must feel like when I do it to them. Yeah. yeah. It's weird. Do you get that when I record you? Uh, well, I, I guess it's just what what you're used to doing, I guess. And, and nowadays, my idea of recording is having you in the room doing it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I feel really comfortable with you sitting there. In terms of demoing, 
I couldn't do that with anyone around when I'm writing and I'm doing the same thing, the shortcut on the keyboard and then mm. un- undo, do it again, undo, do it again. Times 800. Times yeah. 800, although when I'm demoing, as I've said before, I am not interested in quality performance mm. whatsoever. Yeah. Just getting Which is down. different to yourself because when you're demoing, you're recording the album. Yeah, I'm pretty much, yeah. So there have been times when the demo guitar tracks have become the final versions. Yeah, that's amazing. Is that so, reamping DIs or yeah. is that... Oh, so yeah. the f- um, on Where Dreams Came to Die, I did reamping mm-hmm. through um, my Angle. Since then, I've mostly just been doing it through the Kemper. Um, which but, I, but reamping through the Kemper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. exactly right. with, with Kaba, it's it's because you don't record a DI that we don't do that. Yeah, mm. so, so so yeah, just, just to be really clear, every time I record anything, um, going way back, I was always recording a DI. Um, and if there was some plugin that I was using to just get a metal tone or the Kemper was being played back, I'd be recording that as well. And then I'd then end up going back, cutting all the pieces together. The idea is with your DI bit... If you just connect the actual recorder guitar bits, you always get those little clicks in between. Mm-hmm. We haven't precisely cut things. But if you play back the DI track through the amp, that's all taken care of. And you just play back the entire thing in one mm-hmm. and just reamp the entire thing. Mm. Yeah, that works a lot better too, especially when, you know, hey, Kappa, can you come around on Thursday mm-hmm. and be the best guitarist on the day for two hours and then piss off and then revisit the song a week later? and have the same intensity like you've got to be able to be flexible enough to cut it all together yeah because yeah sometimes people just aren't in the zone to do it but if you've got the flexibility where you've got that di track you can fix it yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) sometimes yeah yeah. exactly (laughs) i've never done too much actual individual editing of notes or anything like that um but i have definitely cut out sections that have been better performances and just inserted those yeah I think, that, I think that's valid. I think we yeah. call it. Yeah, that's yeah. legal, right? <laughs> well, yeah. And I think that's a, a big thing to note because I reckon that's something that was available on tape in the 60s. Mm. You could punch in, but you'd be punching in a section yeah. and you'd be doing it along to something, whatever it may be. Whereas these days, like I told you about that podcast I've been listening yeah, to. Yeah. And they're really into, oh, that note wasn't the right velocity. Let's yeah. cut in the note. Yeah. And two things I have with that is one, I can't be bothered doing that for a start but also it sounds like you've punched in a note yeah yeah so i have no problem with doing sections but Mm. if cabba wasn't feeling it on the guitar in that day we do that section again on another day um and yeah because it's a di instead of a mic'd up cab um yeah you can you can do that after the fact of the reamp yeah because yeah there's nothing worse than making it unrealistic why not just program the whole album if that's what you're (laughs) going to do exactly right yeah so when you're recording these things and I guess you sort of say you feel bad that someone is watching you over and over again do these things, I, I've, I've put that totally out of my mind because I've realised I've played like millions of wrong notes just over and over again. Um, just in that pursuit of trying to get that one take that I'm pretty happy with. Mm-hmm. If someone else is watching me make those mistakes, then I mean, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's their problem, I think. <laughs> do you think that... Like for me, when I record, I think because I came from a, like a tape-based background, mm. and you just had to get it right or yeah. else do it again. Yeah. Um. So whenever I do write a part, drums, guitar, whatever it may be, I try and get it to a point in my demo where I can play it start to finish without stuffing it up. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not the greatest take on earth, but that's how I treat it. Almost like practice. Yeah. For that riff. Yep. Um. Whereas I get a bit scared that if I was to just chuck down an idea and go, "She'll be right." 
then when I go to the recording process, I won't be able to. I've never Replicate pulled it off it before. Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the yeah, I totally get that and have had that exact thing happen. But um, these days, uh, the new rule is if I demo a song, I also guitar pro it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'll actually do now is I've just demoed a song purely for ideas and for structure. And then when I go to tab it, that's when I'll actually nut out the best way of playing each certain riff. Right. So is it mainly so that you can make sure that you know how to play it again rather than replicating the performance, like the actual notes? Are, yeah, well, it's, yeah. it's about um, nutting out the song exactly or choosing a riff. And, you know, I recorded it like this and that's essentially how I want it. However, mm-hmm. I reckon that note should be that or whatever in this yeah. harmony. Um, but it's more so the reason we started doing it is because we have fill-in bass players a lot of the time and fill-in right. guitarists so and whatever. Some Having that there ready to go is just fucking awesome and just yeah. so I don't have to sit down and teach them every single time. Also, selling music on Bandcamp is awesome because you can add an extra content with your tab downloads. Right. So you can actually give them tabs when they buy. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, and hopefully your tabs pop up online and more people. That's really cool. I, I've always that. hoped that one day, and you would have grown up in this era when you could actually buy like the guitar world tabs of like entire albums like Master of Puppets. Yeah, Guides Better Living, signed by Grinspoon. Yeah. And written and actually thought about. <laughs> yeah. Was that the first one you got? Yeah, I like that. But I find those tab books are never accurate. <laughs> they never are. But imagine having someone else tab yeah. your stuff and have a look through For it. For sure, it's a cool feeling. And see what their interpretation of. That'd be amazing. Man, that's interesting. Yeah. And that you bring that up, um, I guess uh, watching you as the registering composer over the years, in registering it's like, if everyone sort of had different jobs mm. in terms of how the band operates and that. Your main job is obviously writing the songs and being a, a legend and then... <laughs> Making coffee. Then Bernard and whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bernard or whoever will take care of the promo and booking mm. gigs and everything like that. How does it feel to you as a songwriter to give that responsibility to other people in the band? Amazing. Do you Do you have, any, the best. Do you have any interest in how much... The music is distributed, or not how many gigs you play? Not doesn't no. interest you at all. <laughs> not phased. No, cool. It's um, and I think it's, again coming from, it's what I did when I was little. It was like a hobby of just like writing mm. music and playing stuff and, yep. and messing around with the audio technology. To me, that fun bit is creating it, um, putting your ideas down onto tape, digital media now, and then listening back to it in my own room. I'm like, to me, that's the ultimate thing. So it wouldn't concern you even if um, the two redescending albums never actually came out. I guess probably not. Yeah. Um, I, gu- I guess in terms of like having like a goal, you tell people that you want mm. to release an album, but the reality is you just want to do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> right. You must love Spotify and Apple Music because like when I was just trying to get ready for our tour, mm. thought what can I play that I know you're right there, mate. <laughs> what can I play That's more that uh, coffee with that? <laughs> that I'm familiar with that I'm not bored to death or burnt right. to death with um, and I thought I wonder if Red D's on Apple Music found it Kingdoms chucked it on and just played along to it really and it was just and that's I think when I emailed you saying holy crap I haven't played double kicks like this in a while yeah, yeah. and I think that's a good way of releasing an album without yeah. any um, you don't need a label and it can be worldwide and people can still access it yeah yeah so if you know it's summoning stronghold in mm. 10, 15, 20 years after the thing's released, Ash can still go and find yeah. it. And, and I cool. like that you still, you have to seek it out still. <clears throat> There's something magical, I think, in still going, I want to hear this band, you find something. Or the ones where you stumble across it. My favourite thing, especially when I was going through high school, was listening to really late night metal shows. Oh, where yeah. you just stumble across the most crazy... Recording some things with the cassettes and then trying to exactly. figure out yeah. what the band was. Yeah, and it turns right. out it was Cryptopsy with the Supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The day you found that out, you like... 
oh, this is it. This yeah. is this Good. is the end. This is. And I do miss that a, a lot as well. And you know, Meshuggah Chaos Fear album that was like right. period too. And I was finding just yeah weird stuff like that. It's magic, right? When RTR you find FM. It, yeah. And then I heard yep. my first folk metal song, and I'm like, what is this? Whoa. Yeah. So you sort of lose the excitement these days. But Spotify is still cool, and, and Apple Music yeah. with the Discover. We're walking in today. Dawn. Yeah. <laughs> How good is that? I've run? never heard them before. Same. And instantly went. This sounds awesome. Yeah. I'm not going to say I don't know what it is because I'll be Sun, Check it out. Is <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah. And again, so I think that came from listening to some other bands, and that was just like something I stumbled across. That that wasn't something I heard late night on radio one time. I'm pretty sure that was through internet searching and stumbling mm. across it. How do you but find again, music these days? Do you still look for music, or you've got enough? Um, there's uh, a massive backlog of stuff I haven't listened to that I'm still ca- so I'm always playing catch up. Like, <laughs> okay. and I think I think you're probably the only person I know who's probably on top of things as <laughs> as, as best as you can, and you're still not. I try to be, but I, I find this, I uh, have this problem where I, I don't really know a lot about older metal, like before I started keeping on top of things. So like, so that's for the example, we were on tour last yeah. week and someone puts on Van Halen and I'm like, what's this? this? And this guy's <laughs> like, I can't imagine a world not knowing what this song is. And what's even funnier about that is that was the song we played at the end of the last podcast we did <laughs> and Kappa still didn't know what it was. <laughs> yeah. But it becomes a research project. You're like, how much time do you spend catching yeah. up on things? Or do you just listen to the current bands who have already done the catch-up? They've done the research. They've taken it all in. They've created a new style of music based on what they've already heard. So do you pick it up from there? I think you still need to hear some of the main bands, the elements that created genres, for example, and where it all came from. Mm. Going right back to the blues, for example. You need to know the line just to understand why everything's based on the blues pentatonic yeah. scale and things like that. Yeah. But you don't have to listen to every single possible band. There's just no time. Yeah, I was um, thinking before when you were talking about being too caught up with the recording of music rather than the actual writing mm. or creating of it. And I find that's the same thing with listening. Yeah. As if I get home from work and I spend an hour listening to a new album, I've like maybe get super inspired but then go like now i have to cook dinner and wash the <laughs> yeah. kittens or something I'm already behind yeah 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 whereas like i think the beauty of this you know iphone android device thing is you can cruise around when you simply cannot make music on mm. the train or your lunch break at work or wherever it might be i do all my audio research in my lunch break because i'm right. at work at an office with a computer I've toyed with the idea of getting a traveler guitar and mm-hmm. just sitting and like doing runs or something. But I thought that's a great place where I can catch up on research. Mm-hmm. The train's good for metal and podcasts. Yep. And um, also Van Halen and things like that. <laughs> the important stuff. But then when I get home... That comes I on wanna, the metal, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I want to jump straight into it. And that's mm. all the gear that I've bought these days because of my research yeah. is just about yeah. getting up and running instantly. Making it smooth. And- yeah, yeah. So, so what is your setup these days? So way back in the day, the first sort of proper recording suite that I used to use was Nuendo. How did you come across Nuendo? Not, not by things? legal of course. Yeah. So I, I, <laughs> through, through research, I basically like trying to work out what the best one was to do. Um, Pro Tools always came up as the industry standard, but way back then it was always tied to hardware that I couldn't afford. Proprietary. Still That's right. weirdly feels that way, even yeah. though it's not. Which... They kind of, out of their market was the, the sort of amateur recording people like myself. So um, the other options were, of course, Logic, but that was all tied to Macs. And again, mm-hmm. budget-wise, I had PCs lying around the house that I could still use. So the only <coughs> logical one at the time really was um, the Steinberg ones. Nuendo was 
the one I sort of researched, I had some friends interested in film as well. Mm-hmm. So doing surround mixes, that made sense to learn how to use that as an ecosystem essentially. Um, and now I finally have money so I can actually buy stuff. So now I'm just using Cubase. Yeah. For like a light version or I'm guessing... No, no, I've got the full version, the full yeah, version yeah. of that, yeah. I think that's really important too is that <coughs> no matter what it is, you if you like the workflow... I think this is... I think I got stuck into the workflow. So probably one thing... I've tried Reaper, for example, a couple of other things and just not knowing the keyboard shortcuts mm-hmm. would just really cut into my recording. So I was like, oh, I'll just shell out and buy the full version of Cubase that I know how it works because it's linked to Nuendo very well, of course. Yeah. Everything worked exactly as I needed it to do. I don't need the, the film stuff anymore. So I don't need sort of those, although they can still do mixing that I still need to do. Mm-hmm. All the workflow was exactly as I remembered it. So I could just get straight back into writing music. Yeah. So I realized just spending a bit of extra money buying that product. Uh, again, I think it's still too pricey for what it is. But <laughs> Me too. When Reaper's 60 bucks. Yeah. It's, and it does everything, but same for me. If I use the um, scroll wheel mm. and it, zooms in instead of like moving i go i "I fucking hate this yeah and all of a sudden yeah i think because we're sitting down and recording and playing at the same time Mm -hmm. if it's going to cut into my music writing time it's not worth the money at all Mm. so probably yeah again i I don't quite agree with spending that amount of money on it but the value Mm. i've got from it in terms of workflow has been probably worth it me too and i think a really important thing to note is that uh, Pro Tools was behind. I got into it because I did buy, I thought it was industry standard. I mm-hmm. thought it would make my music sound better. Mm-hmm. Bought an Mbox, which came yeah. bundled with Pro Tools. So I just by default got that. It didn't change the sound of it at all. Yeah, yeah. And it, I actually found that I could use the hardware with different software, but I couldn't use the software with different hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just by default got used to Pro Tools, right? Yeah. And now, now caught up in the... <laughs> yeah, and it totally sucked for ages because it was far behind. It was always 32-bit until mm-hmm. version 11 mm-hmm. and a few other little things like that that just wouldn't let you bounce offline. So our original podcasts, I used to have to wait one hour for it to bounce a podcast wow. and then the computer might crap out at 45 minutes. You'll start the whole thing again. And start it again. <laughs> so that was crap. But once it got to a point where it sort of did everything that every other software did, mm-hmm. I just went, well, I know it so well. That's it for me. Yeah. And, but I'm never going to upgrade ever again. So just use that current version and... That's it. I'm still on 11. Yeah. I'm not going to change it. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't upgraded in since I bought my version of Cubase either. Okay. All the extra bells and whistles are adding stuff I don't need at all. Yeah. And I'll need to upgrade my computer. It's, uh, one thing I have always done is just had one dedicated recording rig. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, because I've always been a bit of a tight ass, it's always been yeah. a PC-based <laughs> system. Yeah, yeah. I've usually spent more money on RAM and yeah. pretty high clock CPUs and things just to get the, I guess, like live plugins and things actually being played back as I need them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always made sure that it was a dedicated computer because I found in the past, whenever I tried to mix things, use the computer for other stuff like gaming and it just slowed the thing down massively and it would crash. There'd be massive conflicts in different types of hardware. So Mm. I do have a dedicated computer just for recording. Yeah, I think that's good. But how do you get sound into it? Like what device do you use? So now I'm using an RME Fireface. Oh, sweet. Which one? It's the the UCX, I think it is, the the tiny one. Um, Cool. I can't remember what the thing is. I'll show you upstairs anyway in a second. It's the tiny one. It's the UCX. UCX, yeah. It's not the full size one <coughs> with the cute little rack handles at the front. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I think it's U6. It's got some um, built-in 
effects you can use that mm -hmm. don't need to rely on using plugins while you're recording. So yeah. you can actually get some reverb and some delay when you're tracking, which mm -hmm. is awesome. Saves on all your CPU time. Um, and it's easily the most stable one I've ever used. Yeah. So, so I didn't, again, a little bit pricey, but there was a couple of things, key things, like I think your interface has to be good. Mm -hmm. Your software has to be usable um, or at least a flow that you're willing to use. If I could start again and I'd never used anything before, I'd probably go with Reaper or something mm. really straightforward. Mm. And But I'm just so set in my ways. Yeah. I probably can't change that. I know there's definitely keyboard shortcuts you can download that make it into essentially a Cubase-based mm -hmm. system in terms of that. But there's workflow things that are totally different that I'm just not used to. Yeah. So I'm just using mm. that straight into it through, now I've got a USB um, connection. I used to use a Motu Traveler, mm -hmm. which used a FireWire one. But again, using PC, that's never a standard thing. So you used to have to buy the right computer with the right mainboard. Yeah. Do it have the right um, Texas Instruments FireWire chip to make it work yeah. properly? There's way too much messing around. Yeah. That's very interesting because I hired a Fireface UFX once. Mm -hmm. And when I was setting it up at home, I put on Lateralis by Tor mm -hmm. just to listen. That was the first thing that was there. And I went, oh my God, I've never heard <laughs> that element of the kick drum before. Yeah, yeah. I cannot believe it. And it just, my same, same stock standard setup just suddenly sounded amazing. Yeah. And so I think there is something to that like conversion argument out there. Yeah. I don't think it's worth like losing sleep over. No. But um, yeah, if you do buy something quality, like I've used the Apogee and got the same effect. But uh, I already had that on order when I hired this RME. Right. And I went, oh, my God, please be as good. As good, yeah. Like, and, yeah. And sure enough, it is. That, that was the other thing I was looking at at the time. So it was between yeah, the UCX yeah. and that. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I don't feel like I need to upgrade things anymore. It's just like this never. is probably it. And how often do we use more than two tracks at a time? Yeah. Like never. I've seen the RME have the Babyface Pro now, which is like a non-breakout cable version of their Babyface. Bit more expensive mm. again, about the same as what I paid for the. This has actually gone up since I bought it. Oddly, oh wow! Yeah, about three or four hundred bucks. Fire out. Yeah. Um, but same thing. It's small. It does the job. Yeah, that, that yeah. was on my shortlist as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're not recording drums all the time. Yeah, and you've and got if you that do need to. You can still yeah use ADATs and. And then in terms of guitar, you're using the Kemper? Yeah, so yeah. straight through the Kemper. The Kemper's always recording the direct guitar and also a Kemper metal tone. Do you do that th via Spidif? Yes, yeah, yeah cool. I do. So I am limited to, I think you only get 44.1 um, kilohertz with oh, that. I'm pretty sure that okay. limits it. Um, or 48, I can't remember, but basically you can't get your 96. Yeah. Do you care about that? I don't give a shit anymore. Yeah. No way. Okay. <laughs> like... That stuff's gone way beyond what I I used Double. to I used to worry about all that stuff. Yeah. I did a couple of like setups with the exact same guitars, same setups recorded in twenty four bit ninety six kilohertz. And then mm -hmm. I still think twenty four bit's probably the way to go. Just Definitely. in terms of your yeah. resolute. But in terms of your sample rates, forty four point one is all you need, I think. Yeah. I use forty eight and only just a tiny bit of overhead to that's it. Yeah. And, and that's because I've been in trouble in the past where I've had to polish turds. Mm -hmm. and I do find if you do use heavy plugins on not ourselves, because we, if it's not good enough, we do it again. Yeah. Whereas when I've received files from someone else and they ask me to help them out with something and they can't sing, for instance, and I put auto tune or something like that on yep. there, there's less artifacts yeah. at 48, I, I believe. Yeah. And maybe I'm just crazy. I, I, 
used <coughs> I did use ninety six for another reason though. It was just he had shorter um delays between when you're recording. There's just less latency. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, in terms of audio, what I'm actually hearing from it, mm. probably not a huge amount of difference. Yeah. And as we're getting older, our ears are getting shitter. So oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can't hear those high ends anymore. <laughs> exactly. What rigs are you using in your Kemper at the moment? What are some of the good metal tones you've found? Um, have you heard the Tills set, the Chimera, where he's basically recorded um, three different amps, melded them into one tone, and yeah, there's something about the the attack you get with minimal gain. The gain's set for most of them on about three or four. Really? And you're getting the most punchy tone, and it's just not this massively saturated metal zone buzz that I think mm. a lot of other amps are sort of guilty of. It's... Yeah, it's really punchy, really pristine, and it probably fits my... I think my attack on the guitar is much more rhythmic. There's much more up strokes as well going on, and it comes out really punchy sounding on that. Free download? This was the set you, you can buy. He's got a couple of free ones you can get, um, but it wasn't too expensive. It was pretty good. Yeah, there are some rip-offs <coughs> out there, though, in Kemperland. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I think you really got to manage expectations when buying something like a Kemper profile. Yeah. Because if you suck at guitar... And you it's get not going like, to make you amazing. Yeah, is it? it's not going to make you sound better. <laughs> and you know, you could have the best reviews in the world out there of something, and it's not going to be good. Mm. But if you've got like, and you're a great player, and you actually care about your pick attack, mm. so that is expressed, and you know what you're looking for. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. I think it is. I just, I just like the the concept of it is an amazing device. I think. Mm. Um, I remember when I was trying out to get an actual um. PA system to play it through, trying to find the best sort of flat response system. I took it to this guy. Um, have you come across Soundtown? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. George, yeah, yeah. The guy's a legend, right? Yeah, but yeah. he he came across this like, this is amazing. This is like where it's at in terms of getting signal chains. And he knew the distributor who was going to get him one. Mm-hmm. He got it. He ended up um giving it to one of his friends who's like a major sort of famous Perth based guitarist. He lent it to him for a weekend. And he called him back. He says, "Can I keep this?" So <laughs> oh, really, wow. he was just that taken. And he hasn't actually had a chance to get another one shipped out to him to try it out. So, yeah. but he was just blown away with the um the idea and the concept of it. I think it's super cool. And I listened to a podcast it's recently. Long as relying on it for live situations, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been over that enough the last few episodes. But if anyone's wondering, the Ian that we mentioned who recommended the Kemper to us, yes, you listen to him now. Uh, is my name mud now in terms of uh, performance? And <laughs> that's right. That's that's me. That's all my rigs are always, I know, always I have issues. But it <clears throat> seems like there must be something up with yeah. your model. Gosh, I should have bought. Say, I forgot. Should, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> because you because you've emailed Kemper and they say I oh, get the latest firmware. Well, no mm. shit. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that advice. Done that. What can I do now? Because that's not normal for Mm-mm. it to. Did, did you hear what happened on? Yeah, yeah. It? That's bizarre. So for it to spontaneously change profiles to a like a red descending one while we're mm. playing Claim the Throne. And yeah. again, like I said to him, it felt like I was fucking with him from a distance. Yeah. Like, yeah, I recommend yeah. the device to you and then it's changed into my presets <laughs> yeah. while you're playing live. Yeah, Ian's got the uh, voodoo Kemper. Where he's <laughs> yeah. changing his and it's affecting mine from another you guys state. You like the original <clears throat> versions of them, right? Do you, do you have yeah. the Caramp one? No. No. So you I bought a pretty, well, I, I, not too long after it came out in Australia at least. Yeah. For a really good price. Now it's... Getting, yeah, getting pricey yeah, now. Yeah. For sure, for sure. It's going up. Yeah, but you do get the built-in power amp and probably mm. a few other things with it, but yeah, definitely going up. Mm. And you got the rack mount ones now yeah. as well. It's kind of cool, different colours and all that. But It's just a tough thing because it, it is amazing and it's amazing because it's complex. And mm. if you can't dive ultra deep into it and know the inner workings of it, how do you troubleshoot it? Yeah. yeah. So that... 
you got to be a tinkerer to. Yeah, you're but really not, not as much as saying Axe FX or something. Like this, this is probably yeah, as okay. simple as that technology goes in terms of yeah. getting presets that will work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that was the attraction as well. I, di- I didn't want to spend hours diving through lots of mini yeah. pages. And if the, the funny thing is, it never fucks with me at home when I'm using yeah. it in the studio or and rehearsal. it's perfect or at rehearsal ever. Yeah. It's only Voodoo. in strange environments yeah. <clears throat> when it's most important. It suffers anxiety and gets a bit freaked out <laughs> yeah. when it's in front of large crowds. I think so. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if there's certain maybe because I, I always plug it, run it through a cabin, apparent. Mm-hmm. So whether there's certain cabs that it just wigs out. That doesn't make sense. It yeah. doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, what, what else do you think? Really? Yeah, exactly. But anyway, whatever. Um, so I would say we probably start wrapping it up now. Yep. But question to you, Ian. Uh, Red Descending, you've been mm-hmm. working on some new stuff for the last X amount of years. Mm-hmm. Where are you at? And, what, and maybe what interesting things are you doing differently this time? Yeah. So where I'm at is not in a place where there's anything going to be released in the next few months or anything. There's still a lot of songwriting to go. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to do is go through some of the older things and ideas that I could harness, but I just keep on hitting that block where I'm just going, there's no point mm-hmm. rehashing old stuff. It sounds like old stuff. Yeah. So I'll sit down there. Amazingly, what I can do is either sit down and write an entire song straight away or... It takes six months to nut out yeah. one song. It's just, yeah. and I never know what's going to happen when I sit down. So there's that slight trepidation when you sit down to try to start writing something. It's like, what's it going to be today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you only work on one song at a time? Mostly. So maybe for about a week or so, I'll try to focus on one particular piece. Mm-hmm. If that's not going places, then I'll start to work through a couple of other ones. Um, mm-hmm. But I try to focus as much as I can on one song. The only time that changes is when someone else is involved and they have a new idea for a song and you go back to it. I find that really breaks up the the flow, I mm. think. you kind of got to focus, I think. Mm. Unless you're writing a concept album with all <coughs> related. And Have you ever gone through that process? You go, I'm going to do a concept album. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does it happen? Not you're really. all going to do it? Yeah. yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't really. Do you get well, to the point where you go, oh, the concept's this? It's like... No, this is just too wanky. <laughs> the latest thing is I've been purposely trying to sit down and write new Claim of Thrones stuff and I want it, I've always wanted it to be long epic songs mm-hmm. and that. And, you know, like we were talking earlier, just having those ideas and sticking with one idea throughout the song rather than heaps of different shit. So I sit down and write, I'm like, all right, I'm going to write a 15-minute epic song now. Next minute, I've got a one-and-a-half-minute thrash <laughs> song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, you can't force... And I, th- I think what, what you're saying what you is do. kind of what I'm hinting at now is... I'm just kind of letting what happens come out. Yeah. And I'm not getting in the way of the process as much. And that's the songs that flow are the ones that I'm letting actually flow. The ones that I'm working at, I'm starting to realize are songs I probably shouldn't work at. There's a reason why it's mm. not coming out properly. Mm-hmm. If it's good or not, I'm not too sure. <laughs> <laughs> Time will be the judge of that. Yeah. But um, it's, it's definitely not a dead project if um, that's also a question. Definitely not getting to that. <laughs> uh, another thing about guitars, you've got the Schecter. Mm-hmm. Is that the only guitar you use when you track? No, the, you have... the one I mostly use is actually a Paul Reed Smith. Um, oh, no way. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the only problem with it is it's just got 22 frets. Yeah. I yep. kind of need the 24 for most of the leads that I'll play live with the Schecter. Mm. So a lot of most. Of the... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so mo- most of the tracking is actually, especially rhythm wise, is yeah. with um, a Paul Reed Smith, which just, I think, 
I bought it from a guy secondhand, mm-hmm. and he had a guy change out the pickups to something. I don't even know what they are, but they sound incredible. Oh, so okay, I can't cool. actually, I can't like replicate the sound in a different guitar anymore. So yeah. <laughs> like all hand wound and it's incredible. Unfortunately, so. that brings up multiple questions. Yeah. <laughs> I, one of our regular listeners and a good friend of ours, Razor Ray, who's in the, the band from this oh, brilliant. Bane That's of a cool shirt. shirt I'm wearing. He loves vintage basses because mm-hmm. his attitude, and he can correct me in the future on this, is that why buy a modern bass for $2,000 when yeah. you can buy one made in Japan in the 80s for 500 It looks super cool and sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he bought an old Rickenbacker and this guy who sweats a lot said to him, <laughs> oh, is that, um, are you going to change out the stock pickups in that? And he's like, am I going to change the stock pickups in a Rickenbacker bass? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. I don't think I will. And yeah, interesting when you can get like a really high quality guitar like a PRS. Do you need to? Maybe not. Mm. But the fact that you got it in that condition, exactly, and it yeah. sounds I, great. I probably wouldn't have done it myself. Um, yeah, but what yeah. he's done to it is, to me, there's a magic to it. I guess yeah. the fact <laughs> that now it's a guitar that I've bought secondhand that I don't know what's happened to it, and it sounds magical, just adds this extra element. Yeah, I, I think that's very valid as well because yeah, you don't know what this thing's done for the mm. last however many years since it's been bought, and it sounds that way, and you're probably never going to get that sound from another guitar. Yeah. So to me, it's it's got this unique quality to it that I just don't get when I pick up other guitars at shops. Yeah. And do you think there's any value in using multiple guitars, let's say, to track double tracking rhythms or quad tracking? Uh, yeah. Do you think there's any value in that? <laughs> I tried it once um, yeah. and I did do it for a couple of songs and it does sound good. But at the end of the day, I went back to using one guitar, one setup. Um, what I usually do is double track every guitar. Um, usually end up with eight tracks overall. Mm. So actually, actually, sorry, I quad track yeah. two guitars. Yeah. So and, and what's the value of that? Because I've never got past my approach is to just double track mm-hmm. rhythms. So essentially a left and a yeah. right and that's it. Okay, so what I do is um I'll do that but I'll then split them both. So I'll all the demos are recorded so you have everything double tracked, mm-hmm. but then they're fifty fifty split left and right. And so my okay. songwriting approach is to not split the guitars left and right, is to actually make them meld. So essentially you have two guitars playing two different things, but the overall sound is that they're both playing something more complex than they are by themselves. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you get this sort of intertwining. You can't actually tell what each guitar is doing each. So mm. to go back to something you've said way before is when you tab your stuff in Guitar Pro, I never tab anything. So the hardest thing is going back and relearning what I've done. The only way I can do it is to listen to the individual guitar tracks because mm-hmm. they're always crossing over each other. Mm-hmm. So you end up getting this really dense, almost wall of sound guitar, of guitars, especially when you're tremolo picking. Mm-hmm. And to me, there's something magic about having two guitars playing two different things on the same track, but they're both tremolo picked. The reason why I then quad track it is to cover mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, really? I basically average them out. So I reckon when I do two guitars, mm. I can usually... The reason why I do this, I suspect it's the same for you. So you get that perfect stereo image. Yeah. yeah the closer yeah. you play it, the better you get this really nice spread of sound. And you can move it left and right, whatever you want, but still have the same sound if you end up going hard left and hard right with the same guitar. Mm-hmm. The other two are so that those two ones that are split hard left and hard right are then basically averaged out to take care of any mistakes. Yeah. Made. Okay. And you don't find that it gets like a smearing. So when you do the mistake that... No, again, I, I, that's note level. Yeah, so that, that, that's why I, tr- I try to make sure that the the performances are super close. Yeah. So the only reason why I ever re-record something is to get that precision back mm. into it. 
So I have a new approach and oh. that is try and use. So left and right, mm -hmm. I want them to be different. The idea is that they're two different guitarists or at least two different parts. Mm -hmm. But I want them to be as different as possible. Right. So in the sense that guitar left will be a one guitar, guitar yep. right will be a different guitar. And then the thing that remains the same is usually the amp chain. Yeah. And rather than quad tracking, I would put two mics on an amp. Right. So yep. what I'm missing with a 57, because mm -hmm. I'm still not quite there with the Kemper. I don't have a Kemper or anything. Mm -hmm. So I'll yeah have like a 57 and I'll blend it with a darker mic right. to offset yep. that. And then I also find that it gives a bit of thickness and texture. Yeah. And I, I feel, and this again, it's all voodoo and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I feel that that makes it wider. Because mm -hmm. I've got this problem with mono. Like it, it feels that even if I pan hard left and right, it's just pulling into the center. Yeah. And it's only when the parts are actually different to each other that it suddenly splits out wide. Yeah. And that's, I don't know, that's kind of where I'm going. But that's as a tinkerer and not even a guitarist. Yeah. So if I'm playing a guitar part at home and writing a song... I'll use the same fucking guitar the whole time. Yep. But then when I get in album mode, I'm like, oh, we should probably use a different <laughs> guitar for the... Yeah, I don't know. So I guess mm. just to address also the mono thing is mm. I've kind of gone back the other way. And what I love, the idea, like I said before, is you have the two guitars playing. Even if they're hard pan left and right, it doesn't matter. The fact is I've got two guitars playing in the same channel. So mm. Essentially reducing it down to mono, but with a bit of a spectrum to it. So you're actually so my, my, my concept parts, is combining the two parts into one essentially. So hard Unless right you need is both to. parts, and hard left is both parts. Yeah, but usually usually about fifty or seventy or so. So I never go hard left and hard right. See, with that is guitars. a really different thing. Yeah, because that totally is different. like a different. It's a texture. That's what like you're trying to get like this thick thing going through yeah. the middle. Yeah, and it's the, the, it's the is, wall of sound. Yeah, <laughs> it's no, Devin Townsend. It's that's, <laughs> is that what he does? I'm not sure what he does recording-wise, but I think he's got probably one of the most upfront wall of sound approaches in a yeah, lot of recording I've heard recently. Like, he's just bang there. To the point where working out separate guitar mm. bits becomes the challenge. And to me, that's where the fun bit comes into guitar playing, mm. is you combine two guitars, so together they're playing something that's greater than an individual guitar could play by itself. Mm. See, that now makes sense. Because mm. years ago I asked you and you said you quad track. You're like, why? You know, and I'm like, yeah, well, why would <laughs> why you, do, would you that? do that? And I've tried it and sucked at it. Yeah. Like, it's never worked for me. But that is something completely different. Yeah. I think it's, it's, I guess it's a different, we didn't it's ever like talk about the philosophy difference. of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really, that's a cool thing to try. Yeah. So, so I guess the essence is, um, it's so that, and it's not always used. It's just so I have the option to do that if I yeah. want to. There are some songs where if you have both of them playing at the same time, it, you can't actually hear the separation that you need. So sometimes I'd then separate them back the other way. Yeah. And in yeah. that case, quad tracking doesn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so just, yeah, more, more options, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then one time I tried to do it for <laughs> the early Kingdoms recordings and some of the demos I did. I ended up having eight tracks with my Paul Reed Smith and eight tracks with remember Nick Bean's guitar that he got made by Ormsby. Yeah, yeah, I do. Awesome sound as well. So I did another eight tracks. So I essentially had 16 tracks. That's when it wow. started getting a bit smeary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus. It wasn't like the Black Album. They did 16 tracks on that, I think, for most oh, of the really? stuff. So, But Hetfield's just a yeah. rhythm machine. Yeah. So he's linking this stuff in, getting a really thick sound. My personal threshold is eight guitars, the quad-tracked dual guitar approach, gives me the thick sound without the smearing. Yeah. <laughs>
That's so unbelievable. In, and sorry, Cab, because I can see he's trying to do the boss thing and wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that when the reason I do two mics is because then I can say that's just one thing. As long as they're in phase mm. and I have uh, strategies to combat that, yeah. um, namely running a stick click sample through mm-hmm. when I reamp, so and then, then I can, can line up the phase perfect. dead yeah. on the grid. Um, so that works really well and I, I just know everything's in the ballpark. Whereas with vocals, if we layer, because we have two vocalists, actually mm-hmm. three technically, but clean vocals, we get Cabot to do a main part, Jesse to do a main part, and then everything else after that, if they feel they want to thicken it out and double track it, I'll like figure out what is the main background vocal. Right. And then with the double, I'll hardcore edit the double to mm-hmm. match the... Um, execution of the original one yeah so the the s's finish mm-hmm. at the same time and the t start at the same yeah. time so you can't tell it's technically you can't tell it's double tracked mm-hmm. um because i think the differences between the background and the main are big enough yeah so then i want all the backgrounds to lock into what is the main background and then if there's another harmony that's allowed to just be natural yep any doubling of the harmony locks into yeah if that makes sense to our listeners i know yeah. ian's getting it but yeah but what, yeah what I, I take the other approach i take the recording engineer approach where i make bernard do it until he gets it right okay <laughs> interesting yeah yeah but I, I do the same with my guitar playing so yeah the reason why the quad tracking works is because i'm making sure that each of those upstrokes mm. is locking in with the other ones as well yeah have, have you heard any smearing on the recordings or never never and until you told me that it was quad tracking you know in yeah. parts or whatever it blew me away when you said that. Right. Like, how could it possibly be? It sounds like one guitar. Yeah. And I guess that's why it works. A good way to end, probably, if you can tell us uh, how to make a, the perfect cup of coffee. All right. So I think it's all about the beans, personally. So make sure they're freshly roasted. You're looking... What's your no, favorite Not immediately bean? roasted. I think you've roasted some beans. They're a day old. A day old. Probably, probably 48 hours is probably two days. two days. I think that's probably what you're looking at. Yep. And you use them up within about 14 days. So the biggest problem, I think, is finding places that actually sell beans... If you're going to go to a cafe, go to a really high turnover one. The Imp down there, awesome. They always have really good beans. Mm-hmm. Um, they're roasted specifically for the Imp as well. And really high turnover, so you know you're getting fresh beans whenever you buy them. The best alternative is to get yourself a coffee roaster. Oh, wow. So I've got the Baymore 1600 Plus now. <laughs> I started with a crazy popper. <laughs> yeah, I've still got a crazy popper. Roasting your own beans for that. We'll have links to those in the show notes uh, directly at Amazon. If you'd like to support sec- the show. Sec- second major sure element, of course, is your, uh, your grinding. So... <laughs> <laughs> and you've got a hand grinder. Yeah, so going with the Lido. To a cheap burr. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. still still got the conical burr, um, but it's a proper one. It's the sort mm. of one that you find in like a um, a proper thousand dollar electronic machine, basically. And what's the brand and model of that? It's the Lido E. Okay, cool. Because I'm going to buy it, obviously. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't remember where I got it from, um, but yeah, you'd be able to find it online. Yeah. I didn't find any distributors in Perth for it, so I had to order it from over east, I think. Yeah. And the coffee machines, of course, the next big thing. So. Mm. And it can go insane with proper coffee machines. But anything non-commercial, you're looking, you know, a couple of grand at least, I think. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, you're looking at dual boilers? No, I ended up getting a heat exchange system. Oh, so wow. the dual boilers were up there as well. So mm-hmm. the brand I got, the dual boiler version of that was another $1,000 about. <laughs> so yeah, I'd, I started balking Eek. at those prices. Yeah, so. yeah. But probably the amount I've saved in terms of roasting your own beans, making your own coffee when you're paying four fifty a coffee a day and you drink maybe two or three a day, it actually <laughs> saves you enormous yeah. amounts very quickly. So. Good stuff. We could talk to you for weeks, Ian, so we'll probably do this again another time soon. would be awesome. Thanks be for awesome. Uh, chatting to us and well, talking to all me. these uh, people listening in and, and uh, yeah, whatever. 
Uh, we'll go out uh, with some. I'd love to go out with some summoning or some uh, dawn that we've just heard about, but in reality, I'd also like to hear Ian play guitar, and uh, I think the listeners would love a Red Descending song, and I would like to know what your favourite Red Descending song ever is. God, we did talk about Slaughter Falls a lot. Mm. Um, just, I think, the amount of effort put into writing it, the clean vocals and the death growls and the samples in there. Female vocals. Yeah. Incredible, right? Mm. <laughs> if, I, if you don't say so yourself. Should we do a double and go Slaughter Falls and then into some either Summoning or Dawn? Oh, yeah. A yep. song? Pick a track. Long lost to my pathway goes. Good stuff. Hopefully uh, your listeners still have uh, space on your mobile device to listen to this <laughs> entire episode. We'll catch you again soon. Peace out. ClamThrown.com.
would envy the dead. They would inherit a world so devastated by explosions and poison and fire. Now I am the commander, the destroyer of worlds. I'll be there waiting for